0: This is Preston Whitwer, assistant editor at Philanthropy Journal and producer for this podcast. We're taking advantage of this holiday week to replay a favorite episode from the archives. The work of the Philanthropy Journal is to champion conversation and connection. We provide a platform to help our communities grow closer and work better. And we know that one of the best ways to do this is to simply talk to each other. There is so much already that divides and isolates us— Technology brings new ways to connect, but those connections are weak by their very nature. Even today, with all we experience, the power of mindful conversation is unmatched. On that note, this week we're bringing you a real-time demonstration of what's possible when people meaningfully connect face-to-face, as we hope you all have the chance to do with your loved ones this Thanksgiving. Here it is, first airing in November 2018, On The Table. Welcome to a special episode of the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. This week, we share highlights from on-the-table discussions that took place in Charlotte, North Carolina on October 24th. Over 6,000 participants took part in conversations hosted around the city. The theme for the day was The Legacy of Segregation and its Continued Impact.
1: I went to a segregated school, York Road. It was all of York Road. You had the city and county schools at the time was in the city, so it was segregated. In the county, it was segregated schools also. Um, our books and most of our materials came from Miles Park High School. So, when they got the new stuff, we got their old stuff. I mean, that was just, a, that was just the way things were. I'm very happy to get it. Um, some of the restaurants. Uh, there was a restaurant called Tanner's. I think he was Greek. And it was the idea of the people sitting down to eat. Well, it was a big commotion about that because black people were not allowed to to come in and sit down with whites to eat. He came up with this brilliant idea that if black people couldn't sit down, he would just take up all the stools and the tables so everybody would stand up and eat. And Tanner was on North Triangle and some of the best hot dogs and hamburgers that you would want to get. Tanners. On tanners. Tanners. Yeah. On eleven o'clock on Sunday morning, uh, used to be, which it still is, the most segregated time on Sunday morning because so good that. But that's right. But but you can see some changes.
2: When were you deeply aware of having a segregated experience in Charlotte or Mecklenburg County? Well, I can start. I was born in Charlotte, so for me, I immediately go to busing and segregation. I was born in 1962, so we grew up in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system and experienced busing. And um, I'm thinking that it was probably fourth grade, maybe, third when I was nine or ten, that would have been around 1971, that... We were bused, and I was bused from the Idaho Met Hill area, which was not even really wasn't in the city then. It was a very different place. I don't know. Did country. anyone else grow up? I did. You I was, did. Yeah, okay. I was born and raised here. It was the country back then. Yeah, it was the country, and so um, I was bused to Lincoln Heights for fifth and sixth grade. And so at that, and that was a forty-five-minute bus ride. We were used to going to our home schools, and. Um, so that was probably my first experience of really being outside of uh, my element and my comfort zone, and, and meeting uh, folks who were very different from myself. And you know, the beauty of that is that I went to school with the, with folks, um, with the people I met that year until high school, and we went through a lot. Of writing you know, really, there was no preparation for differences then you know you just we were thrown together literally and um and I you know and and at our reunions those are the folks who we we gravitate towards each other because we went through so much and um and really helped shape the way I guess education is today good or bad my kids are in CMS and have grown through that but um Anyway, that's the time that's the I really realized it. And I think the, the exhibit at the Levine Museum, if you haven't been there, you, you know, it's really, really powerful and worth
3: going to. And so. Lena Hopkins Jackson. I am a local visual artist specializing in cartooning and illustration. I'm also a teaching artist and a native of Charlotte, North Carolina. As far as today's meeting, I left excited. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm seeing a difference in the Arts and Science Council I knew from the 90s compared to what I'm seeing now. Um, not only just now as advisory board member, but as a contributing member of the arts, you know, culture here in Charlotte, um, I'm seeing the leaps and bounds, and it, it makes me proud. Um, I feel like people are listening. Um, today we were asked about segregation, and um, a really a heavy topic. I had a moment to speak on what I saw going on in the Noda area. I used to live in uh, Johnstonville apartments, and um, just to cut to the chase, I saw... Um, a community that was literally separated by railroad tracks. On one hand, you had um, working artists like myself, you know, in my 20s, didn't have a lot of money, people that were on Section 8, all living in this one kind of apartment complex. And then on the other side of the railroad tracks, you had um, the NOTA that was that we know today that was growing with um, your yuppie, buppy types, um, as well as contributing artists. And I had sort of a Pollyanna way of seeing it at the time, like, oh, it's just a matter of access. If I can get local artists to come and sort of paint murals over some of the graffiti that I saw in some of the hallways or get some of the young people who lived in the apartment complex to simply cross the railroad tracks and visit some of the neighboring galleries, um, it might change their mindset, change their worldview, and not be so limited um, from what I could see from some of the programs that I work with um, in an apartment complex, an after school program. and What bothered me was after talking to some of the um, neighboring businesses, I had someone be very honest with me and say, um, you might as well give this up because in a few years, all this is going to be gone. um, This is not interested in partnering with the people in those apartment buildings. They're going to basically mow those down and do something brand new with it. So you're kind of wasting your time. I won't say his name, but he used to own a very popular business over there, and he just kind of—I guess he's trying to save me some trouble—and it just sort of made me very sad. On one hand, I appreciate gentrification; I really do. On the other hand, I thought, you know, you know, what's this manifest destiny thing going on now? We're still doing that thing where we just kind of come in an area and just sort of bulldoze people out because two years later after he told me what was going to happen that's exactly what happened there was some sort of termite thing and they bust people in the middle of the night on city buses out of their homes people that still had things left behind because they were told like you've got to evacuate i think it was two hours or something like that you know just like i said as a as a visual artist it went deeper than that but i think that's the beginning of when i started to feel like You've got to use your talent for more than just um, painting pretty pictures, for doing caricatures at parties and events. But it's one thing to have a conversation with two or three people, but you can do a piece of art that will have a lasting impression, that will be a conversation starter. And whether it's provocative and it elicits some sort of angry response, at least it's a conversation that's happening. What I heard today, when I heard Robert Bush speak, and when I heard Tony speak, and all the other members of the RC Science Council that, that presented today was, I felt a shift, I felt a change. Um, I want to take what I heard here today, spread it on social media, and say, look, segregation exists, racism exists, but don't let the current political climate going on, don't let whatever you're bothered by locally going on uh, distract you from the fact that you can make a change, you can have a voice, you can have your say. So I'm Lawana Mayfield. I
4: serve on Charlotte City Council, representing Southwest Charlotte, District 3. I also serve on the board board for the Arts and Science Council. So, as with you, this morning, we had our morning version of on the table, where we had some really interesting conversations. So, at our table, I happened to be the only African American, and then there was one young woman who's actually from Salvador, but since we're in Charlotte, everybody gets thrown in the same category of minority. So you lose your geographical experience and identity. But it was really interesting for everyone to share when they came to Charlotte, what their history was. So I moved to Charlotte in 1988. It was a very different Charlotte, very black and white. But I grew up in Miami, so it was very difficult to transition initially, but Charlotte has become home. I've been here more than 30 years now. What I also recognize is as an African-American, especially as a black female, there is this expectation that we are not supposed to have a voice. And as an elected official, when I share my opinion or my voice, people opposed to hearing the message, they always want to shoot at the messenger. So you're not upset about the issue that I'm addressing. You're upset about the fact that I have the audacity to address an issue. So sitting in a, around a table where you have very diverse people coming together and two of them admitting that they have absolutely no black people in their life, in their work life, or in their personal life. One of them sharing the reality that the community that he's moved into in our region was a predominantly, a historically African-American community, where of course i 77 was built and split the community and made it black and white. So he's Mm -hmm. moved into, they're like one of two white families. They have moved into this all black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like on the ground? Just as you were saying Lena, that displacement that happens, because we know the impact that when that first black family moved into that all white community, that because of real estate agents and others created white flight. Yes. With that white flight Mm -hmm. came the removal of infrastructure, the removal of government investment in the area, for that area to literally go down, become an area of high poverty, low access, low opportunity. But now black community stayed. we rebuilt in spite of, we built up communities. And now for a lot of people, it feels like in the last decade or so, white America is reimagining historically black communities. Yes. And now that they're moving in, you're not moving in and trying to get to know the community. You're not interested in being a part of the community. You are literally having conversations that consist of okay, so if I build this three, $400,000 house, is this what I'm going to be facing? And you have a real estate agent saying no, all of them will be gone soon. So to hear that so you to. had that conversation some years ago is heartbreaking to me because I wish that people knew how to use their elected officials. We are... We are a nation of policy. We can trace back to the 1800s. Legislative systemic policy was created to ensure that black people did not have access to generational wealth. We can trace it back before the GI Bill, but the GI Bill is the easiest example for a lot of people because it was specifically created for white men who returned home from the military. Black men served in the military, Asian, Irish, but it was specifically created so that white men can have access to purchase a home. But we also got to think about banking system. We, there was a time where you had to pay 50% of the cost of your home. The banking system was created, but then along with that came mm-hmm. redlining. And with that redlining, what you did is say, okay, if you live X number of feet within 150 feet of black community, we're not going to write you this loan. Or if you had a community that was mixed because y'all were, say you were farmers together. Farmers, you all work in the field together or you work in the mines together. It didn't matter your race. You all work together. But then you had government that came in and split up communities and told the white people, we will get you into a better situation. We're going to leave all the black people over here. And that started to create concentrated Mm -hmm. poverty. The New Deal was creating complexes where you took land from black. Families and gave it to white families. You then move those black families, just like you said, with just within the last few years of Charlotte. In the middle of the night, people are scared and given a scenario that says you need to leave now with little to no information, but none of them Probably have been knows. able to come back. Nope. And we do this repeatedly. There is a policy piece that goes along with this conversation. What I'm excited about is at my table, there was a young white male who lives in Cornelius. He is that one where he and his wife have moved. They purposely wanted to move in the historically black community. They have not figured out how to build a relationship with their black neighbors. It was funny. It was his sister-in-law, who is black, coming to visit with their niece or nephew when the neighbors saw her over after that, is when the neighbors started waving at him. He's allowed at the cookout. He's you. at least, and now, at least now they wave and acknowledge him. So he's trying to it. figure out how to maneuver. But we have this TV show on right now, The Johnson's, with Cedric the Entertainer yeah. that talks about just that we this talking. situation. So we suggested to him one, watch that. Two, I gave him my personal number along with my counsel card to say, okay, you can hit two birds with one stone because along with being black, I'm also with Charlotte's first openly LGBT elected, so my wife and I have been together more than 10 years. We were married two years ago, so I'm counting that 10.2 (laughs) because I'm going to get credit for those 10. (laughs) So I was like, you can have both a black and a lesbian, LGBTQI, so you can hit check off two marks with as far as diversifying because he wants to do better. (laughs) So you can have female, black, lesbian, But it's that piece of when your neighbors see that there is an interest, it may be difficult for you, but it is not difficult for me because I don't meet a stranger to to see one and they would say, hey, we're going to have a cookout. Y'all want to come over and get to know. I think the whole day that's going to happen, you have these on the table conversations that are going to happen in in corporate space, in religious space, and nonprofit space all over the city. Here is a time where, if no other time, that people of differing backgrounds, socioeconomic, ethnic, whatever identity that you move within are going to come together. My hope and what I ask from my table is what's next? Do we get to build real relationships? Do we get to break bread together do we get to have drinks do we go to a movie yes, yes do we spend yes. like me and a bunch of my friends when black panther came out we all included our white friends dressed up in african oh, garb and we went I to see black too. panther together <laughs> so we're like what is the, i need to know how do we build i don't want to just see you once a year at this event that quick how do we build them. real relationships so that we can
3: change the conversation wow wow i <laughs> I've been speechless to the whole thing because I've been listening to you and just, like, if I had a notebook to sort of write this down. um, And I guess we'll get to hear it. So, you know, that's great. It's being recorded. Um, That was my feeling when we were at our group. Like, okay, this is great, but what next? Yeah. You know, um, I guess I'll see you guys at the next meeting perhaps. But, you know, it made me think about my experiences at, West Charlotte. (laughs) Um, Here I am at... um, West Charlotte High School in the late 1980s when busing was the thing
2: mm-hmm. and
3: it took years later to realize just how far we have come um talking to someone from Maryland they didn't understand the impact of busing I said you need to understand this to piggyback on what you said Luana. I'm still friends with these people I went to high school with black white not a lot of Latino um there were a few and this is Charlotte in the late 80s when it was, like you said, Y'all lions black or white of uh, family. We are tight. <laughs> and when it comes <laughs> down Charlotte to lions. it, it's <laughs> not about race. It's about are you a lion or are you not? Yeah. I see us on social media, and you know, um everybody's like still friends and still talking, and we're hyped about our reunion coming up. And um, and not in that corny kind of look, aren't we cool and diverse like a Benetton ad, but like real genuine diversity, where it's just like that's Susan, and we were in Dr. Kaiser's class, and she's still my girl. And it's you know. funny,
4: because one of the young women at my table, young white woman, is was a graduate of West Charlotte. Oh, she cool. was a part of the busing, and I said I would love to hear her story, because all you saw on the news was the negative impact of you. young black children being bused, and all of the hatred and what we have to deal with. I would really love to know... What was that experience for the white children that went to West Charlotte and went to the predominantly black school? So, you think about it. I have challenges for one project of land that's owned by the Spanglers, but I also recognize I give credit where credit is due. CD Spangler did something no one else did. He sent his kids to West Charlotte. Talk about it. So, we cannot not acknowledge that and recognize the reality that that was some really forward thinking because you had wealthy white people who really led the charge in Charlotte around integration yep. but we only see in posters and during Black History or any discussion all of the horrific events that happened to young black children and the racism that was there I really want to know what was that experience what was that story <clears throat> Excuse me for those young white children that went that into is, the predominantly you, black Tawana. school
3: she is so right i, I, I you know and not to poo poo this but you know to start count scoggins is a, a family friend but every black history month they they bring out that video footage of her you know um or not video footage but photographs of her being taunted yes. by, by by young white students and that was definitely a part of, of of integration but then there's the other part that i know as a graduate of the late 80s that there were Caucasian students who wouldn't have had it any other way. As far as they were concerned, we were family. And the the proof is in the pudding. Here it is, 2018, and we're all still cool. What I also wonder
4: is what do they feel and what do they think when these same pictures and conversations are carted out in front of the community and showing this one side? I've always wondered that, but I haven't really met a number of white people That talk about it. Like, this is the first time. Like, I've had it in the back of my mind just wondering. This was the first time this morning. And we we all shared. I made sure we all shared each other's contact with each other and cards so that we can stay in contact. Because I would really love to know. Hey, let's have a real conversation. How does it feel when come Black History Month or different times of the year, this is the version that showed when you live something very different. And we never talk about what was your experience. A good side of blessing white female or white male going to a predominantly black school? Were you welcome? Were you taunted? Were you spit upon? Did you realize that you have some amazing friends? Did you learn how to play spades? you learn how to play bid whist from us? Did, what did, you, did you learn how to do double dutch? All the things that we take for granted. What was that experience for you? We never talk about that. And I hope that ultimately these on-the-table conversations become real relationships. Like you said, not just a conversation, but okay. oh my god,
3: I am so glad that we stayed I, after. I'm so glad to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we're gonna probably want to talk about it even later because I, I I got questions, right? But um, you know, I just want to say this meeting was a success. It was, yes. you know, I mean, just overall the stories I heard, things I wanted to say to that person, like later on, and like just like in a living room, comfortable atmosphere, away from, um, you know a formal meeting setting, right. you're not the only person that worries about what schools your children go to, because um, he was expressing his guilt about not wanting to go to schools that had been um, the Title I, whatever term they're using, or whatever, and these conversations have to, um, you get a, a small segment of time, and then someone introduces something that you didn't realize before, like with the alumnus of West yes. Charlotte, and you want to talk more. I and I'm that's just it will lead to that. That's the relationship building.
4: And hopefully, whoever listens to this, if you haven't been a part of On the Table, you look into it and recognize that you can create your own On the Table. You don't have to wait for this one day. Yes. All of the information is out there. It's in partnership. You can go to the ASC's website. You can just do a Google search or On the Table Charlotte, and you can get the platform and or the model so that you can do some on the tables in your own neighborhood to change the conversation so this was really great so yeah, thank, thank you, you for allowing us to share i'm so glad it was you <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to
3: someone to just you you're gonna always bring the truth <laughs> i love it
5: I had some sort of grand idea of a way that I could make a huge impact, but uh, something that I've been talking with my wife about recently and that I'm going to continue to focus on, um, so we have a young child, he's two and a half, so we're having the same conversation that every parent's have, have a child of that age, right? where's he going to go to school? If he's going to go to school in a certain place, what neighborhood do we want to live in? Um, and all those sorts of things, and as we've been having those discussions, where do we want to live, where do we want him to go to school? we've realized just how easy it is to be really racist, right? Because, I mean, when you're talking about, we want him to go to the best possible school, right? Because we love our son so much, we want him to go. We think he's brilliant. We think he's a prodigy, just like every parent does. So we want him to go to the best school. If you ask people, well, where are the best schools? They might tell you where they think the best school is and start describing why. And if you really take a step back and think about it, why is that the best school? Is it the best school because we got good teachers, and Everybody, it's the best place for our son to go and learn. Or is it the best school because a certain type of child typically goes to that school as opposed to other types of children? Same thing with the neighborhood. Where's the best neighborhood for us to live in? Where's a safe place for my son to go play and all those sorts of things? Well, people will give you their opinions on where the – even some realtors, right, will give you opinions on where the best neighborhoods are, and you can if you take a step back. You can say, well, is it the best neighborhood because – Going to be the best place for our kid, or is it because a certain type of family lives there as opposed to other types of families? But it's so easy to fall into that trap, well, right? To say, well, he so should so go I to, say, go to mean, this school, and he, uh, should, he should, therefore, we should live in this neighborhood. Um, and again, it's not that kind of direct. You know, we're doing this because we don't want him to be exposed to certain parts of the population. We just want what's best for him. But that can lead to inadvertent decisions. I mean, that's like supposed- exactly. Um, And so we're, I mean, thats something that we're struggling with. And so I think one of the things that we can do just as our own individual families, just be aware of the structures that have been put in place that can be very easy to fall into that habit of segregation in our community. And just being mindful that we we want what's best for our son and for our family, but without falling into some of the same traps that have led to the kind of segregation that we have
2: yeah, so, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm Mary Long, I'm a business advisor for an organic farm in Polk County and I'm also on the Duke Mansion Lee Institute board, which is how I got involved in this conversation. My
6: name is Rosalia Torres-Weiner. I'm an artivist. I call myself an artivist. I combine my art with my activism. And I've been living here in Charlotte
7: for 24 years. I'm
6: part of the New South. Um, I'm Jill
7: Bierce. I've lived in Charlotte since 2011. Five years ago I founded a nonprofit called Open Charlotte. And uh, we work with government and communities to make government services more accessible and equitable. One thing you said during we were doing that readout that I thought was really interesting is how realtors, um, you know, how being pushed into different areas. I live in a historically black neighborhood of Cedarsville, And when we were looking to buy a house a year and a half ago, my realtor kept showing me houses in other places. Like She kept sending me listings of other neighborhoods, even though it was only, I only asked for three neighborhoods. Um, Seversville being one of them, uh, Villa Heights being the other one, and Smallville being Smallwood being the other one. Um, I kept getting uh, real estate like for um, over by Plaza Midwood and Shamrock and Eastway and all of these neighborhoods that were not historically Black neighborhoods. That as you know, I, I feel like even though she didn't intentionally think so um, when. When we were looking for a house, taking the presumption that because I'm white that I would prefer to live in a white neighborhood. When we were all about, like, geography and affordability. Um, Because, you know, both myself and my husband work uptown. So I'm like, the closer to uptown you can get me, the better, the happier I am. Um, And I like that diversity in my neighborhood. But uh, my realtor didn't, it took me a little while to get her, like. Yeah, I, I know where I want to go. You know what I mean? Like I've been in the neighborhood. I'm not just like pulling names out of a hat. We moved here 25 years ago and
2: we were looking for child care for you know, a fairly young child. And where we were where we looked for houses basically, um all the people did look like us and the church options for child care/preschool were completely monochromatic and only by going to a Bank of America Child Care Center was I able to find a, a more diverse situation for my child and subsequently, my children. Well, I'm just thinking like when I moved here, I didn't
6: have a realtor, you know. <laughs> so, And also my husband was working from home, so we didn't have to commute, commute to Charlotte. But I think I've been learning about those, segregation, the changes and the new changes in Charlotte, uh, because just by myself. And I, and I share, share this story with my table. Um, I have, I'm a muralist too, and I have several murals in Charlotte. And I was painting a mural on Central Avenue. And there's where the, the Latino community concentrates. They live there. And I wanted to give back to my Latino community by painting murals. So I'm painting a mural and I see this black gentleman and like trying to talk to me, but also he was afraid to talk to me. He was, and um, I turn around and I say hi to him. And he said, Lady, do you know this was a black neighborhood? And I'm like, yeah, and I get off my ladder. And I said, yeah, well, uh, And she's like, there was a barbershop here that was this and da-da-da. And he said to me, and now you Latino people came and don't talk. And for me, that was like a great opportunity to have that conversation. And I said, guess what? This is what I'm here. Let's talk. So he gave me this story about the neighborhood, like how it was segregated, how it was uh, all these businesses, how it was like a black neighborhood. And... At the end of the conversation I remember I said, um, I'll tell you what, you find me a wall and I will tell your story. I love painting public murals because I always meet people uh, with different maybe ideas and I start, because all my work is about immigration and social justice. And when I said that I'm part of the New South, the Levine Museum um, created this exhibition about the Latinos, the growth of Latinos in the South. And um, how we're making the changes to the Charlotte, and how Charlotte is changing us too. So it is a very interesting experience for me to to learn about um, about how Charlotte is being se- segregated and is still, you know, segregated. Um, I was and at the table there was a lady from LA, and she was talking like how it is segregated over there. Yeah, I live in LA. It is segregated. And it is here, too. Uh, I remember when there was a, a shopping center, a big shopping center for the Latinos only. They put it like out on the outside of Charlotte. We felt like we were not included. And it didn't do well because Latinos would not go there. It That's was too far. North,
2: the North Tryon, 36th Street
6: one? It was on um, almost like South Carolina. Oh, the other direction. Like, you know, like the limits in four mil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it was four mil, but for us Latinos that we were like on Central, South Park, you know, it was too far. So they d- didn't make it. So I, I think this is like when we have to sit down and say, okay, so what, what, what works for you and what works for you and for me? And, and listen, because at the end, we're a community that needs to work together.
0: Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Experience. TNE is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear, our graduate editor is Kristen Gollihu, our graduate assistant editor is David Mueller, and our communications assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience, and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.
8: So I ended up turning left, and I don't know where I was, but I was going down through Plaza Midwood this, that, and other. And, you know, the way the buildings and the homes and everything looked were very consistent. And all of a sudden, the closer I got into town, there popped up this kind of new house with the two or three old houses. Oh, then there's more. And then the further you get in, it's all these big new houses. Um, And it really made me think about the people who live in those neighborhoods. And at at what point does somebody say, and how do they say, we can't keep building these $500,000 houses in these neighborhoods because we're running people out of them and another interesting thing that I have noticed and I hope that it is going to be nothing but a success when I go home I go down Tuckaseegee Road down past Betty Ray Thomas and they have opened a new coffee shop right there on Tuckaseegee called Enderly Coffee Mm because that's the neighborhood that's over there And so I noticed this coffee shop opening, and I thought, well, this is really interesting to me that they're doing this. And at first, I didn't see people there. And then all of a sudden, I started seeing people sitting outside drinking coffee, and it was all white people. And young, young, you know, millennial men, young moms with their children, yeah, you know, drinking their coffee in the morning when I'm on the way to work. And I'm like, well, this is great that it's being used, but... Where are all the people who live in this neighborhood yeah. <laughs> that are going to drink this coffee? And now, I don't know how they're marketing or anything like that. Over the last few weeks, I have seen occasionally an African-American person sitting out drinking coffee. But what is it that we are imposing on people in those neighborhoods? Well, we want you to have a coffee now. But it might be a $5 coffee. Are they, right. Are and they so really going to go drink coffee? coffee? Yeah. You know? So those are the kind of questions that I think about when we talk about, you know, lasting effects of segregation and how, what we can do.